0: Hi everyone. Welcome back to the Quantum Heart Cafe. I hope everyone's had a, a heartfelt week and weekend. And sorry for being away next or last week. I had some uh people over, so it was really hard trying to find time to do a recording and I wanted my intention was to record during the week, but it just didn't work out, so I just decided that I'll just wait and record on the the sun like on the the weekend just because it's usually easier to do that, generally speaking. So sorry about missing last week. Uh, and I hope that uh, you're all looking forward to the uh, the show today. I'm going to be talking about, or um, continuing to talk about Worlds in Collision by Emanuel Vilikovsky. And uh, this, today I'm going to be starting on uh, the section where he talks about Venus. So I didn't get a chance to finish reading the whole section on the um on Venus because it's a bit longer it's about like 10 chapters so I did half of it today and then I'm going to uh, continue or conclude the section on Venus next week and then I think after that um I'll be then talking about Mars so that should be most of the book I think uh anyway so I hope that you know you uh, enjoy this the, this next section and but be but before I get into um, the the book and kind of what I learned and sharing that, I do want to just give a little bit of a couple of, uh, you know, an announcement. And then, of course, the uh, moment of gratitude. And uh, I did get a new uh, decaffeinated beverage, like I said I would last week. Or sorry, not last week, but the week before. Um, so the announcement, uh, last week I was listening to Allison McDowell and Jason J- Jason Bosch giving uh, a really important uh, presentation. As par- and it's all, it's part of I think it's a six part series that they're doing, and it's a presentation on um, where Allison and Jason, as well as a few other guests who will be uh, coming, who will be part of the series over the the course of the six episodes. They're going to be talking a lot about like uh, the rollout of. Um, blockchain and uh, the social impact uh, finance part and uh, wanting to turn nature and turn people, especially vulnerable people, into digital assets. I mean, basically they want to turn all of us into digital assets. And the idea of, you know, privacy and so on will be pretty much thrown out the window as we have to deal with the Um, I think it was Clifford and Allison who who called it the outside-in robot, where, you know, this technology, the Internet of Things, and eventually the Internet of Bodies will be watching us 24-7, including our homes. So it's pretty important. It's a really important um, series, and I hope you all will tune in. I'm going to post the first—they did the first uh, presentation last week, so I'll post it in the show notes if anyone's interested— And, you know, I I hear this comment sometimes from people who uh, also listen to the presentations that they're a bit long. And I just want to address that here that you don't have to you can break down a series like that's what I sometimes do. If I don't have uh, enough time during the day to watch a full presentation, I'll break it down into like 30 minute, 40 minute segments and then just take notes from there. So I kind of treat it like I did um, I'm not treated. It's what I do is usually, you know, when I was going to university and stuff, I would just sort of treat it like being in a classroom where I'm taking notes and, and learning. And then if I have questions, then, you know, I could post them in the chat because Jason and Allison are really good about taking questions from people. Um, so this, you know, it, it's what's going on. It kind of, it really does require, uh, some self-study and some self- um knowledge to really understand what's going on because um, it's kind of hard to leave that up to one person because there's just so much there's so much going on so it's and that's kind of where this podcast is important for me because I can sort of explore books and concepts that are related to um what they're attempting to roll out with web 3.0 and eventually they keep talking about the singularity where they want to put humans and robots or I guess organic life and synthetic life together because it isn't just humans it's also plants trees animals and so on like they want to do it to everything Uh, and in order to have an idea of what that means and the vocabulary to navigate through this weird time that we're in it is I truly do believe it's really important for some self-study even if you can only manage it for Thirty minutes a day—that's that's pretty good. That's better than nothing. And even sometimes I only can dedicate thirty minutes a day too. Uh, so I just wanted to say that because it's sometimes you know people are keep talking about the the length and it that shouldn't matter. Like just focus and dedicate some time to learning and studying uh, whether it's, it it the presentations the Allison Um, presents or reading books or something like and and I do think it's also healthy to uh, take time away from too many distractions and just to focus on this I think it's for me this is a spiritual calling just to take the time and focus on what I'm trying to learn and it can be a struggle because there's a lot of distractions out there Um, but it's I feel in my heart that it's really important so that's the one thing I do want to address because I do sometimes see this And, you know, with the amount of information and the amount of effort that, you know, Allison and Jason often go to to present this information, I think, um, you know, dedicating 30 minutes a day to understanding what's going on, it's not really asking too much. Um, And that's me. That's me. I'm not, no one else is saying this. This is just me. Uh, But anyway, so that's the... Uh, that's the announcement I wanted to make. I think it's a really important series, and I will be posting the first of the six-part series. And then, as you know, I record my shows, and as the series uh, continues on, I can post uh, the the follow-up uh, videos, like part two, all the way to part six, as well for those who are interested in learning more. Uh, and then, with that all being said, so I. I am thinking about my moment of gratitude and I just wanted to be grateful for uh just being able to do this work. I know it um being able to study and explore subjects that I find really interesting and I also think are really important. Um I th- I feel like that's pretty cool and uh I'm just grateful to be able to participate in that. And then uh today or last week I was able to Go visit a really cool uh, local coffee shop, and they have quite a nice decaffeinated uh, coffee blend that I was able to pick up, and uh, I'm quite enjoying in the, enjoying that right now. Uh, if you hear some noises in the background, it's probably my refrigerator. Uh, I don't have. I am start. I'm trying to learn a little bit of video editing, but I, I don't know how to drown out those noises. So I apologize or I apologize, and I hope it's not too distracting for people so the refrigerator will just be accompanying us on uh, these lectures I'll try and find some other solution for finding a quieter place to do these recordings but for now um, this is what it is it's just that the fridge will be our friend for a little while (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to start, I'm just going to pull up the presentation. So I'm going to keep going with, so last week, or the week before the last show, um, we started off talking about, let's see, Worlds in Collision by Emanuel Velikovsky. And I did talk a little bit about how he got a lot of flack from the scientific, and also I think the religious community too. Because if you read the book, you can kind of understand where some Maybe not all of them, but some of them were kind of feeling, you know, a little threatened by this knowledge. Um, I don't think it's that threatening. I think it's really, really fascinating how, because um, throughout the book and also in the part where he talks about Venus, he ca- he compares uh, mytho- mythological stories from all around the world, not just uh, what's in the Bible. And he compares them to all the kind of major celestial uh, Catastrophes that happened between Earth and other um celestial bodies like comets and so on, and he kind of relates those events together and he uses the mythological stories to kind of say or as evidence that these catastrophic catastrophic world ending events sort of happened and i thought I find that really cool and really fascinating out and um i you know I hope that people listening also find that really interesting because it's just, I just find it neat how the spiritual traditions and stories from all around the world sort of overlap like that. Like they have their own way of looking at the events, but they kind of have a very similar, they have very similar themes to each other. And I just think that's pretty neat. Um, okay, so I'm going to get started. And so this, this part, uh, that I'm going to be going over today is, talking about uh, Venus and I left I finished off at chapter five so I'm covering today uh, chapters one through five on the the section of Venus and so he doesn't really talk specifically about Venus just yet but I think it's this is more like a build-up to the latter part of the chapters where he does start talking about Venus and then later on the book he's also going to talk about Mars uh, so this is more so, this section he talks more so about what happened or the event that the book of Joshua or uh, Jeshur talks about where the sun and moon stood still for a whole day. So, and then following that, he talks about another world catastrophe that happened during the exodus uh, back in Egypt where the Israelites uh, left Egypt and all the um, the plagues and all the kind of uh, supernatural phenomena that uh, took place during that time. So that was the focus of this, of the kind of chapters one through five. And then next week, I think that's when we'll start being kind of connecting that with Venus and where Venus came from. Uh, so he talks, he starts off the, uh, chapter one by talking about the most incredible story. Um, and that, and again, that was in the book of Joshua or the book of Jeshur, uh, where the sun and moon didn't move for a whole day. And he's wondering, is that even possible? And us, us thinking, what? I never heard of the sun or moon standing still in the sky before. Um, and then he, he was saying that our earth, um, He was saying that our Earth can move from her path, like the elliptical orbit, but it takes a large uh, celestial body to cause such a disruption. And that kind of alludes to uh, what happened, or that's really important to keep in mind, uh, especially with the events of the Exodus, which I'll start talking about soon. Uh, But yeah, so he's saying that a large celestial body can... Uh, disrupt the Earth's natural ro- or the Earth's rotation or sorry, orbit around the sun um, and then he also Emanuel also thought that the asteroids that make up the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter might have been the remains of another planet that existed at some previous unknown time and that a comet could have coll- collided with that planet and destroyed it I'm just like, holy crap, Really? I don't know if that's true or not, but it wouldn't surprise me because you know we we really are um, learning so much about our solar system and about the universe in general all the time, and so I wouldn't be surprised if there was another planet there. I don't know what the planet would have been called because I've no um, I've never heard of this before now, but that would be really interesting. I wonder maybe in another book he kind of talks a bit more about that, or maybe there's another author or researcher that knows a bit more about the asteroid belt. That would be really interesting to kind of um, learn more about that as a follow-up. And he is saying that, um, and he also did say that a comet could collide with us, but the chance is extremely low. Uh, But it does sound like he alludes to... uh, events where a comet came very close to us and with it coming into very close proximity to the Earth, it did disturb our orbit uh, and comets can do that. Um, And then Emmanuel also had some other questions kind of about um, meteorites colliding with Earth and so on. And he wondering, and he wondered could meteor meteorites collide with the earth and create a rain of rocks which um, is common kind of commonly referred to in a lot of myths and legends around the world and not just from the Bible but the you know a rain of fire from the hev- the heavens and so on. could those have been meteorites from uh, that collided with the earth or maybe uh, meteorites from a comet's tail passing over by that kind of gets attracted, they become attracted and they fall, uh, fall towards the, towards earth's uh, surface. Um, And so those were the questions that he wondered. And, you know, if a meteorite is falling through our atmosphere, it is going to heat up. And if, when you have a, a huge amount of them, falling from the sky will create a rain of fire and a massive amount of destruction which uh, you can kind of hear about in stories you know in the bible and also in other uh, traditions as well you know the, the mayas and uh, incas also talk about rains of fire and stories about rocks falling out of the sky in the, um, and then in the book of Joshua, there's also a passage talking about the Lord sending stones from the sky and killing a number of Canaanites during or running from Israel. Uh, this could mean that a comet passed over Earth and the meteors fell to Earth as a result. Um, and then also in the book of Jasher, uh, it also talks about a torrent of large stones coming from the sky. Uh, it also talks about an earthquake and a disturbance in the motion of the sun. And a massive whirlwind, um, which could have also, which could have been the result of a passing comet over the sky. And um, and so I, I kind of found that really interesting because I never really thought about the damage or just a, the, yeah, like I guess the catastrophe or the cataclysm that can come when Earth comes into close contact with an, another celestial body. Uh, And then he talks about, in another section in the chapter, he talks about Earth's uh, stopped motion. Um, So if the Earth did stop or slow down, the inner layers of the Earth would uh, slow down or stop moving before the outer layers because they have a different linear velocity, but they have the same angular velocity. So I think he was saying if the Earth was to kind of stop moving... The inside, like the core and the mantle of the Earth, would stop spinning, before or stop moving before the outer layers because um, they have two different linear velocities, uh, and this could cause this would cause a lot of tension between the liquid and semi-liquid layers in the inner layer, and that can build up a lot of heat. Um, and Then the outer layers would experience great earthquakes because you know it kind of makes sense that like you can't just stop a planet all of a sudden without major um you know without major consequences it kind of reminds me of like if you're driving a car and um if anyone's driving driven a manual stick shift or if you had to all of a sudden brake and you're going at a high speed you know that can that you feel the impact of that even if you don't hit anything uh like if you go from let's say you're driving on the highway and you're in a manual transmission and you make the mistake of going from um like gear five down to gear two instead of gear four like that's that can cause a lot of problems or if you just all of a sudden slam on your brakes from going into high speed uh you know that it that will have a, you know you can't i mean it can hit ha- you can do that, but you'd have screech tires, They're, you know, it's probably not good for the car to do that, and so on, so that would be, I feel like that, for me, the sort of analogy of what happens when the earth stops, of course, you know, you're not going to get an earthquake or anything if you're some on your brakes, but you kind of feel that force, and so it's just, you know, I can't ima- even imagine, like, the force of the earth, what that would be like if it, if she all, all of a sudden stops today, you know, she just comes to a her motion gets turned upside down, and that has happened, uh, according to the book, that the Earth's rotation and her and her tilt have changed over the the course of the ages, and I'll get more into that later. Um, and then Emmanuel does ask if there was a disruption in Earth's movement, would wouldn't that destroy the Earth? Uh, and uh, and then he said that he kind of explored that a bit and he thinks that there must be a mechanism that keeps, that kind of prevents that. Like maybe there's a way that the earth uh, dissipates the energy, especially the heat that's built up uh, in the inner layers. And um, and then he also says that maybe earth could t- have tilted in another presence of a stronger magnetic field so maybe those mechanisms there would help to dispel or, I guess, yeah, dispel or, or maybe the best, but a better word I'm trying to look for is dissipate, is dissipate all that energy created when um, earth all of a sudden stops moving. And then he also talks about, so it's not just in the book of Joshua or Jesh Jeshur where this phenomenon was uh, observed where the Earth stopped moving, but he also talks about on the other side of the ocean how the uh, the Mexicans have a record of a catastrophe from the remote past where the night uh, didn't end for a period of time, like the it's almost like the the night stood still, uh, and then uh, the Midrashim, the book of the ancient tradition, or the books of ancient traditions, uh, not embodied. In Scripture, also spoke of the sun and moon standing still for about uh, eighteen hours. Um, So he, after you know, as he kind of learned more about this phenomenon that happened in in ancient times, he also wonders if there were other uh, major cosmic catastrophes, uh, both before and after what was recorded in the Book of Joshua. And, and that's where we're going to head next, because the answer to that question is yes. And so he's going to be uh, talking about an event that happened 52 years earlier, and that was the event of the mass exodus, where the Israel- Israelites left Egypt, and everything that happened there, like the plagues, um, the parting of the, the oceans, and so on, and then the we do kind of get to the, the gloom and the wandering in the, the desert, but that's sort of the latter part of that's after chapter five. So I'm going to leave that for next week, but um, following, but right now it's, it's like Emmanuel Velikovsky gives a summary of what happened during the Exodus and the different uh, events like the earthquakes, the hurricanes, the rain of fire, uh, hydrocarbons falling out of the sky. It was really interesting. So I'm going to be sharing some of what I learned uh, about that uh, as he takes us on this journey of what happened 52, er, 52 years earlier um, before the events of the book of uh, Joshua. Uh, so he talks about, um, in the written tradition of Central America, about 52 years before the catastrophe Spoken about in the Book of Joshua, uh, another catastrophe of war proportions took place, and Emmanuel asked the question: Could this have been a catastrophe that coincided with the events of the Exodus? Uh, and then he also talked. So uh, Emmanuel Belikovsky has also written a number of other books um, called Ages and Chaos. It looks really th- those look really interesting too, and I think in the Ages or Ages in Chaos, he focuses more so on certain areas of the world. Like I was looking up those books, and it looks like he has one that focuses on the events of the Mediterranean. He has one that focuses on um, Egypt and the Arabic world. And then he has one book, I think it focuses on like other areas of the world, they look really interesting. Um, I don't know if I'll go over those ones for the show, maybe at a later date. Um, there is one book in particular though, it's called Human Mankind in Amnesia that I think I'll I'll look into because that one um it's more of like a psychological analysis of human beings and maybe that, that would be that sounds like it could be a really interesting book. Um, so I might read that one for the show. I don't know if I will cover the ages In chaos at least not right away but they are available if anyone is interested in reading those you can find them and if you want to uh, because if you know just in case you want to learn more about the different catastrophes that happened in the ancient world all over earth Um, and so and he does reference his book ages in chaos a little bit uh, throughout this uh, worlds in collision so he kind of uses that as a he kind of has a relationship between those two books here, but I don't get the sense that I need to read Ages and Chaos to understand what's going on in this book. He's just using it more so as a reference. Um, So in his book, Ages and Chaos, he writes about a great cosmic event that caused a massive upheaval on earth and ended Egypt's middle kingdom. Um, And and now in this part of the book, he's going to work, he does work to answer the question, what, to answer what the nature and dimension of this major catastrophe, or series of catastrophes were that accompanied the plague. Um, and that would have been the event that he's alluding to is the, the natural catastrophe and plagues that accompanied the exodus, and whether other places in the world, or around the world also experienced the same uh, catastrophe or cataclysm. Okay, so he talks about first, um, he starts off by talking about the red world. And so in the second millennium, the Earth underwent one of the greatest catastrophes of its history. Uh, A new planet just joined our solar system, but it previously was a comet. The comet came uh, close to our Earth, and the tail touched the Earth first. This gaseous tail of the comet left a fine dust of rusty color on the surface of the Earth, and this was one of the first observations of the comet. Uh, the dust also gave the oceans a blood red color, um, and it turned our planet red for a time. Uh, both the Mayans, Egyptians, and the Book of Exodus make reference to blood red oceans, which, you know, the blood red co- color came from the dust from the comet's tail. Uh, the book of Exodus also recorded how the rivers stank and that was from the dust killing the fish. So a lot of during the exodus, a lot of animals and fish were killed um, like cows and so on. So it was like I guess that was also part of the plagues. and that was caused from the the dust, uh, this dust falling from the comets that probably you know if it got into the oceans, it probably made breathing oxygen really difficult. Uh, so the, and that probably, I mean, this is my opinion here, but that's probably what killed uh, a lot of the fish in the water. And so because of all the death and the dust in the water, it also made made it so drinking the water was uh, pretty much impossible. So a lot of people died from dehydration at that time. And the dust also caused uh, illnesses and skin irritations among uh, the people in that area. And it also killed off a lot of cattle. So I imagine, you know, fish and cattle were probably a major food source back then. So I, I imagine a lot of famine and uh, pestilence also followed this, this these kind catac- uh, celestial events. And um, I mean, I'm not as familiar with the book of Exodus, uh, but I imagine that maybe that was one of the plagues was maybe famine. I don't know. I haven't read the book before. Uh, I know that there was uh, like a plague of lotuses, and then there was some uh, darkness and so on, and earthquakes. Um, And he does touch upon those uh, throughout this section. Uh, So there was also accompanying the, the red dust, there was also a hail of stones. So as the earth moved into the deep tail of the comet, um, an ash-like dust fell, fell from the sky, uh, followed by a meteor shower. Uh, so a grave, grievous hail fell on Egypt, and one that hasn't been in Egypt since its foundation, and they fell mingled with fire. So that would be a, a rain of fire and stones coming from the sky. And then this wasn't this, Egypt wasn't the only place that experienced this rain of stones uh both the buddhist indians and mexican sacred scriptures uh speak of a cat- catastrophe involving a rain of fire or red hot stones and i do think from remember back from the last section where um i think it was the mayans that talked about uh ages ending like there was a fire age and that ended um which involved a rain of stones coming down from the sky, like fire stones coming down from the sky, and it ended that world age. Um, I don't know if that was uh, caused or that if that happened at the same time as the events in the Book of Exodus. That could have been a different catastrophe, but it has happened. Like this, it sounds from what it sounds like in the book, the catastrophe that happened during the exodus wasn't the only world ending catastrophe. There was, there have been others before. Um, and it sounds like Emmanuel, um, is using the exodus as an example of the kind of cosmic catastrophes that have happened to earth, uh, throughout the ages. Okay. I'm gonna, I'm, I don't know if I, uh, if I'm talking, or if I'm pronouncing this properly, so forgive me. uh, But the it was kind of like a sub chapter in the section. It was called Nafith, Nafitha. Oh, I think I said that wrong. Nafith, Nafitha. um, All right, so forgive me if I I'm going to call it Nafitha for now. But if I, so forgive me if I mispronounced it because I'm not sure. uh, Yeah, I I did my best. <laughs> Um, and, and basically this section of the book talks about the origins of petroleum. Uh, so there's two theories of the origins of petroleum. There's the inorganic theory where hydrogen and carbon were brought together through heat and pressure. And then these, there's the organic theory where it came from dead plants and animals. And I thought this section was really interesting because I never thought about hydrocarbons coming out of the sky. Um, but he was saying that the tails of comets are comprised mostly of hydrogen and carbon, and they don't burn in flight uh, unless there's oxygen present. So, you know, as they're flying throughout the, the solar system and the cosmos, then, you know, without oxygen, they're not going to burn. Uh, but as soon as they go pass through an atmosphere like us or like our atmosphere, because there's oxygen present, they will, some of it will ignite. Um and then the other, and then what doesn't ignite, uh, will escape combustion and uh, fall towards the earth as a liquid, um, and it can be, and this liquid can be soaked up by the sand, and find its way into rock cliffs. So I thought that was interesting. I mean, I I don't know. I mean, I have heard that hydrocarbons come from plants and animals, and uh, in the book he doesn't really d- say that that's. Wrong, but maybe uh maybe plants and animals are one source of hydrocarbons, and then uh hydrocarbons falling from passing comets are is another source of hydrocomp like the liquid that comes down that's not burnt up in the atmosphere that may perhaps that's another source of hydrocarbons. I wasn't sure when I was reading the book like it could be both uh I mean I could be wrong about that, but Maybe there's two sources of hydrocarbons, not just one. I thought that was really interesting, though. I didn't know that hydrogen and carbon were present in a comet's tail. And I'm gonna be coming back to this liquid, um, sort of hydrocarbon or the liquid carbonates or or carbohydrates that were falling into the sky later, because I have been reading the latter part of the chapter on Venus, and there was something about ambrosia and mana falling out of the sky and, re- and that's kind of relating to the carbohydrates that were kind of present in the atmosphere from the comet and I'll get to that in a bit more next week but there was some really interesting stuff about that um, but yeah, I, I don't want to you know spoilers, I don't want to say too much <laughs> um, so both the hemispheres have uh, written records of a liquid falling from the sky. Um, and then the Maya spoke of an entire population annihilated from the falling liquid and the fire that followed. So it does sound like, you know, rain, regular rainwater doesn't do that. So it does sound like there was a, um, a bunch of hydrocarbons falling from the sky. And I mean, if it's hot, it's going to burn people and cause fires. Uh, so I thought that was pretty... Interesting, because again I, I never know, I never realized that comets could actually do this, something like that. Um, that they could have these destructive elements in it, but um, they can. and um, the Vogels in Siberia also talked about um, or passed down a memory about God sending a sea of fire upon Earth. so that would have been also a reference to the falling hydrocarbons. And uh, in the book of Exodus, they talk about this this rain, this kind of sea of fire as the eighth plague that uh, befell Egypt. Uh, so I thought that was pretty interesting. And I also think it's really neat that the stars brought us oil. And he does kind of give a reference to the god, or actually he's not a god, he's a titan, uh, Prometheus, who brought fire to um, humankind and, and he was uh, punished for that by the, the gods um, oh I can't remember, maybe it wasn't the gods maybe it was the titans but the, he got um, you know he got chained to a rock and then there were, he was eating being eaten by a bird every day and then he, his punishment was that he'd be eaten by this bird every day and then he would reset and so he'd have to go through this all over again but there has been references in Greek mythology to an oil Um, to hydrocarbons and so that could have been the fire um so he does reference the the fire or given to humankind from prometheus and he kind of links it to the hydrocarbons that came from the comet so i thought that was pretty interesting and i thought that the the fact that the stars rained down petroleum onto us was also pretty in interesting even though it was a catastrophe and millions of people died it's like presently we use so many hydrocarbons and like an oil and gas to fuel this world that we're living in right now it's pretty it's interesting how that there's that relationship to the past that the oil that we're using today may have come from the stars in the distant past or yeah so that I don't know there's something pretty neat about that it's like a relationship between the past and present um okay and then uh he also talks about in the section about the darkness that befell egypt as well and uh he was saying that uh as earth continued to move deeper into the tail of the onrushing comet um, this created a, an effect of prolonged darkness uh, because the earth tilted uh, was tilt had been tilted um which combined with the gases and dust and cinders from a comet caused massive hurricanes to sweep across this, the earth and uh this is referenced by another a number of uh, uh rabid, rabbinical sources uh documenting the calamity of darkness and saying that the and they said that the land was so dark and the the wind was so strong for seven days that people really couldn't see what was in front of them. And because it was so dense that the, you know, people didn't stir from their houses for a long time and there were, uh, there was records of people choking on the air. Um, <clears throat> so this, you know, this atmosphere created from the comet and the earth's tilt is what created that gloomy, Uh, darkness that lasted for some time during the exodus and even after the exodus because in in the latter part of the book Emmanuel also talks about the gloom and uh, the darkness that surrounded the Israelites as they were traveling through the desert and that was also due to the darkness uh, caused by the comet and the and the hurricanes that that were created when earth was tilted um and then in places around the world, uh, in north, south, and the west of Egypt, um, they also talked about a cataclysm where the sun didn't didn't si- didn't shine for a, a period of time. Um, but then there were also other places that you know, opposite to the east, or opposite to the north, south, and west would have been the east, and they were sa- and they recorded. Um, uh, a long a long period of daylight where the sun didn't set. So there, so he does acknowledge that while some areas of the earth experienced a prolonged darkness, there were other areas that experienced a prolonged uh, daylight a pro- where the sun just wasn't setting. Um, and people from all over the world did use, did mark this event as the end of one age and the beginning of another, uh, and what's really interesting is later in on the book, and I'll touch about it I'll touch more on it next week. Uh, he does talk about the darkness sort of lasting a decade, maybe two decades. And then after that, there was a completely new age because you know the earth tilted and uh, you know the motions was disrupted, then that also disrupted our seasons and the sun setting and rising in different places. So, and to you know, and and then of course people at that time are going to see that as a new age, and so they had to create new calendars, and they had to reorientate themselves to the new uh, seasons and the and the new daylight hours. So I thought that was pretty interesting. I'll touch more upon that though next week uh, when I talk about uh, part two of the chapter on Venus, and then uh, also accompanying the. You know, the rain of fire and the darkness were earthquakes. And uh, so, as the earth became, or it became close and, or got, got into closer proximity with the comet, uh, it also caused earth, earthquakes all over the world. And a number of dwellings in Egypt were overturned. And um, part of, and he was, what was really interesting is that. Part of the reason that the Israelites did better than the Egyptians in, in terms of surviving those um, earthquakes was because of the construction of their homes. Uh, he was saying that the uh, Egyptians used a lot of stone for their homes, and uh, the Israelites used more like, uh, like wood and more flexible material, which is why they were able to withstand the earthquake a bit more and that makes sense because even like I I live on the Pacific Rim and we do have earthquakes and, you know, if you live in a wooden house or a wooden frame building, it's those materials will flex a little bit more in an earthquake, whereas with cement, like, you know, it's a little more rigid so it's not gonna stand up as well in an earthquake compared to wood and the flexibility that wood gives. Um, and then he also said that the same thing happened in Mexico where they were experiencing a lot of earthquakes at that time and the people that were living in the small log cabins uh, survived, uh, fared a lot better in terms of surviving the earthquake than people that were living in stone uh, stone houses which were easily toppled and or turned over by the earthquake. And then he also has a really cool section on um The number thirteen, uh which I thought was really interesting Um, so he talks about how um the night that this happened was on the fourteenth of oh forgive me Aviv. Um, which was the original time the israelites uh, celebrated passover um and then for the egyptians it was uh the name of the first month was uh Thout. um i hope that i pronounced that right as well uh so for uh the israelites the day was a time of uh, feast and celebration um uh, but then for the egyptians it was a time of sadness because of what happened all the people that died during those events. And what's also interesting is that the uh, Israelites and the Egyptians have a different way, or at that time had a different way of counting their days. Like the Israelites would count a day from uh, sunrise to sunset. So that's why that was considered the 14th day. uh, oh, sorry. Maybe it was sun... Sorry, it's sunset to... Yeah, sunset to sunrise. And then the Egyptians would count their days from sunrise to sunset. Kind of like how we, uh, in the West, count our days from sunrise to sunset. Um, and so, because they did that, that was considered the 13th day, rather than the 14th. Um, So, the 13th day of Thelp became a bad day... Um. For Egyptian Egyptians, and uh, they wouldn't do anything on that day. It's also considered a day of combat between Horus and Set, and uh, there's a whole mythology there. I don't, I won't go into it right now. But there was a, if you're familiar familiar with uh, Egyptian uh, mythology, that Horus battled Set to save his father Osiris. Um, so that was considered a day of combat as well. And what's kind of interesting is he does relate how the number thirteenth is considered an unlucky day, even till even now in present times, like I don't know if they do this anymore, but I think in apartment buildings they would skip often skip the thirteenth day or sorry, not the thirteenth the thirteenth floor, and even like you know things like the Friday the thirteenth was considered unlucky or and it still is considered unlucky. Uh, by some people, and then, uh, and then there's also the horror movie Friday the Thirteenth with <laughs> Jason going around killing everybody, and then, uh, so there's still this superstition that's that survives to this day regarding the number thirteen, and it sounds like maybe the that's tied that superstition came out of the events that took place in Egypt and the Exodus at that time. And so that kind of makes sense. And I wonder, I'm not as familiar with the numerology of number 13. But I wonder if the numerology also points to the number 13 being related to like disasters and stuff. It'd be really interesting to do a follow up on that. And I'll see if I can find something maybe and answer that question over next week. Uh, and then he also so another um, kind of climate event that Uh, Accompanied the earthquakes and so on were hurricanes and it was there were worldwide hurricanes and I kind of alluded to that when I talked to or talked about the uh, section on dark the the plague of darkness so the gaseous clouds of the comet interacted with earth's atmosphere um, and its inertia or shifting poles to produce that worldwide high those worldwide high velocity hurricanes I talked about and then at the climax of the hurricanes, uh, the Red Sea was pushed eastward and a passage became available for the Israelites to escape. Uh, and then, um, and, it, and that will, in a, in a few sections, I'm gonna be talking about the tides as well. So the whole part about the passage being opened up. And then I think it was Moses who parted the, the Red Sea it does have a, that parting of the Red Sea does have a relationship with the hurricanes and what was going on with the tides. And I'll talk about the tides in a few moments. Um, and then other cultures all over the world, uh, talk about, also talk about great and terrible hurricanes, uh, accompanying the, these other cosmic events, like such as the Mayas, the Persians and the Buddhists, you know, they talk about world, Ending hurricanes, and I think it was the Mayans that talked about that talked about a cosmic hurricane, uh, being sent that ended a world age. And I don't know if that was the cosmic hurricane that, or the cosmic hurricanes that were uh, as a result of the uh, the catastrophe happening during the Exodus, or if they if or if Earth experienced cosmic hurricanes during another age. It could have been um i'm not sure and then the tide okay and so then the tides along with the hurricanes uh, really affected our oceans as well and so emmanuel speaks about how a cosmic body larger than the earth and within close proximity will have a great effect on the tides Um, and then the comet and that this comet that was so close uh, to the size of the earth and almost collided with the earth that it sent the tides miles miles wide um and also i think it was also miles high like there was other he was talking about how um scriptures from around the world were talking about how the tides reached up towards the heavens and this could have been as a result from the uh, relation or what was going on between earth and this comet um and then combining with the So, combining when the earth uh, tilted, this also caused the tidal waves to move, or sorry, the tides to move towards the poles. Then the tides moved in on themselves. Um, so, many traditions insist that water was thrown high in the sky and it landed on the continents. Like the Chinese and all, they speak about a great tidal wave that swept over the mountains and broke into the middle of the empire during Emperor uh, Yao's time. And then the people of Peru also spoke about how when the sun disappeared for five days and nights, and then uh, the ocean left the shores only to come back and break over the continents. So this would have been the tides moving because of the tilt and the attraction between the planets, or between Earth and the comet, uh, causing the tides to move more towards the poles, and then back into themselves. Uh, And then in the Exodus, the last few nights of darkness were at the Red Sea, when the day, or sorry, when day returned the bottom. So when the day returned, the bottom of the sea was uncovered, and the waves were parted. So that's kind of where, I do remember that part of the story where Moses parted the Red Sea. So as he parted the Red Sea, that was also the tides moving, like splitting and moving. And then as a result of the, the attraction between the, the comet and earth. Um, and then following that, that's when the, the waters of the Mediterranean broke into the Red Sea and caused the enormous tidal wave. And that's also when a lot of the uh, pursuing chariots from the Egyptians got caught in that world, that world, that massive whirlpool, and a lot of them died. Um, and other places could have experienced the parting of the sea as the people of uh, Yucatan recount a story uh, to the colonial shepherds or sorry, colonial Spaniards about how their god opened up a safe passage in the sea for them to escape now I'm not sure if the people of Yucatan were related to the 12 tribes of Israel Um, he kind of alludes to it but I'm I don't know enough about it to, to say it, it could have been that it, it could have been very possible that in other places in the world, the seas also parted, like the tides also created, or the oceans would have also created a safe passage for people escaping other oppressive areas. So it, it could have, maybe it wasn't just the Israelites that were experiencing this, maybe other people uh, throughout the world also went through something similar. Uh, and then this was also pretty cool. Uh, he, he talks about mysterious boulders showing up in places where they, uh, are, you know, according to geological evolution, they probably shouldn't have been. Um, so in many places around the world, uh, especially in North America, large boulders are found in places where they would have had to have been put there by rising water. um, And some of these boulders have different, have a different mineral composition than the local boulders. So that suggests that they got placed there, that they came from far away and they were placed there by a rising body of water. Um, So the scholars of the first half of the 19th century thought the tide put them there, uh, but they couldn't explain how. Uh, So they thought that maybe glaciers had put the, they also maybe thought glaciers had put the, placed the boulders there during the ice age. And part of that's true. It's not po- false. Like, there, I'm sure the ice, during the Ice Ages, the glaciers would have placed boulders in different areas, geological areas. But Emmanuel was saying that if boulders are going to push, or sorry, if glaciers are going to push these boulders, then it's going to move them, they're going to sink and move down. Like, they won't move up a mountain. They'll move down because they'll sink in the snow. Uh, so that's where he thinks that it was the those, these massive tidal waves that were had enough force to lift these boulders and place them in those high mysterious areas where you know they they're very different from the local where their mineral composition is very different from the local uh, mineral composition. so I thought that was pretty interesting um, and then this is kind of and then he also sort of talks about the mythological part. Uh, well no he, he, he sorry I should clarify he's been talking about the mythological stories that accompany these events throughout this section and in the next section he talks about uh, the, a major battle in the sky. So while the oceans and lands were in a great upheaval, the people looking to the sky recount a great battle. Um, the Earth passed through the atmosphere of the comet a few times, and during the second pass-through, there was a large electrical discharge between Earth, Earth's atmosphere and the tail of the comet. Um, there was also a pillar of smoke in the sky that began to look like a serpent when the Earth changed its direction of rotation. There was more uh, electrical discharge between the comet and Earth, with the Earth's uh, influence the, influencing the head and tail of the comet, which became entangled with each other. Uh, especially as more electrical discharge happened, so as the Earth or as the head and tail of the comet got entangled with it itself. It appeared to be a, a major battle was happening in the sky, so you know and I can imagine if you're seeing all this electrical discharge and you know the the tail the head and tail of the comet kind of taking on this serpent-like form, this dragon-like form, then it would look like there's a major battle between uh, some sort of a god and a monster. And that's what people at that time viewed these events as. They they viewed them as, uh, they viewed this as a giant battle going on, in the sky between an evil serpent, and a light god who is fighting this monster. So an example would be, a Zeus versus Typhon or Typhoon, and then uh a Vishnu and the serpent or Krishna and the serpent. Uh, he didn't really allude to it, but. I, you know, I've been kind of reading a little bit of Rudolf Steiner's work, and it kind of also feels like the fight between uh, the archangel Michael and uh, Aramon, which, if you're familiar with the Rudolf Steiner's work, he distinguishes between a, a being called Lucifer and a being called Aramon, or the Aramonic influence and the Luciferic influence as two separate uh, beings, like they're not one and the same. So, yeah, so it sounded to me that kind of also reminded this fight between the serpent and this hero God kind of also reminded me of that story. I'm not sure if they're related or not, but, um, you know, that would be pretty interesting if that was kind of the, it alluded to that. Uh, and then Emmanuel also thought the comment in this guy, because he was also trying to figure out if what the name of that comet was. Like if if other historical texts and other mythological legends referred to this comet at the time, you know, outside of what was going on with the Exodus. And he thought that, you know, he kinda came to um a theory that this comet was was Typhoon because the there there's just a lot of references to the comet Typhoon from other uh sources Or other historical or ancient documents from that time, to suggest that 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 this comet is Typhoon. uh, It's called Typhoon. And even then, there's also the the battle in the sky between Zeus and Typhoon. So it kind of, so that to me that does make sense that it is Typhoon. When I was reading this though, I did I did think that the comet was actually Venus. And I'm not sure if it is. Uh, He's. is. Uh, I'll learn more about that as I read through or finish reading the latter part on uh, the chapter the chapter Venus. Because that's what I was thinking when I was reading chapters 1 through 5. I was thinking, oh, maybe Venus caused this. Uh, but it was the ty- the comet Typhoon. So I'm not sure where Venus falls into this just yet, but I'm um, definitely interested in finding out more. And with that, this... And that being with that being said, this ends uh, part two on the world worlds in collision. I hope you found it interesting. Like the, I'm just kind of summarizing what I learned throughout the chapters, and I think you know I, I'd encourage people if you're interested, if you like learning more about mythology and ancient history, to check out this series because I there's so much more I, I didn't cover that, or so much more material I didn't cover that, that in that is in the books. Uh, just because he quotes uh, Bible verses, he quotes uh, scrip- scriptures from other cultures. And he does a really interesting job of, uh, you know, researching these ancient sources as a means to collect evidence for these cosmic events. And so there's only so much I can really put in to these, into this presentation without it being super long. So that's where I'd encourage you to, you know, check it out. Check out the audiobooks, too. I'm sure there's audiobooks on these if you can't get a hold of the paperback. And it's just a really interesting study. It's a really interesting book. And for me, it kind of also challenges my own assumptions about the planet Earth and our solar system and how these cosmic events can happen that will that can, you know, send the world into this great upheaval. Um and I had no idea about world ages ending and uh, human beings existing before these world uh, ages ended. And it also kind of makes me think about the, the last book I reviewed, which was Many Waters, um, about the events of the Great Flood, you know, the Noah's Ark, and how that world was very different from the, the present world where the two characters lived, uh, Denny and uh, Sandy. And just even how the time, the time, like they observe time differently, and how you know people back back then during the time of Noah were hundreds of years old, but now you know we we live to maybe you know we're lucky if we get to a century. By the time we get to the century, we're pretty we're you know we've aged so much. So it's just it's amazing how time also changed. Because um, there's a grain of truth in that in the book Many Waters, because as you know, I'm just reading the second part now, and it looks like the whole notion of calendars and timekeeping and how, you know, we have 365 days in a year at, at this present time, but in other ages, they may have only had 360 years or 360 days, and maybe they had an previous ages maybe they counted the days differently so you know I thought that was really interesting how you know I know I take this for granted now but it wasn't always the world wasn't always like that there were differences and I I think that's pretty neat Um, and I also think too it's a a little inspiring Like I thought about taking up amateur uh, astronomy as I'm reading this book and just learning to read the night sky and learning to you know befriend the stars and get to know the stars because there's just so much that happens up there and it's only really astronomers that kind of well not only them but you know they're mostly the people that we hear about um studying this stuff and i think it would be really cool as an amateur astronomer you know just to get to know the night sky and all the myths and legends and and maybe just like with the in the book the many waters where the characters could hear the songs of the sky um, and the songs of the stars maybe I too can learn the songs of the stars but anyway so I'm going to leave it there for today I think that's a pretty good show um, I hope again I hope everyone has a, a blessed and heartfelt week and I'll be back next week with part I guess it'll be part three of the worlds in collision where I'm concluding the chapter on Venus and then I think after that, I only have one more section, which is on Mars. So I'm hoping to finish that um, I mean, the following week and then move on to another book. I'm trying to figure out which one, but I'll definitely keep you posted as to which book I choose. Anyway, I hope everyone takes care and thank you for stopping by the cafe.